0: The HD Movie Podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell.
1: And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts and Happy New Year everybody. We have a special episode for you this time round. It's a movie that was actually straight to VHS. It's Norman J. Warren's 1987's Bloody New Year.
0: Christmas is over now, we hope you had a good one, and it's time to look forward to the new year. And what better way to look forward to the new year with a new year-themed horror. Norman J. Warren's rarely seen, straight-to-video in the UK, and fairly obscure, Bloody New Year.
1: So unfortunately, I can't bring you a Nick Reganus synopsis for this one, so it's a bit sad to end the year without Nick Reganus, but it is what it is. So the plot that I'm going to read for you is just the generic one included on IMDb because that's all there is. A group of friends take refuge in an island hotel that is decorated for New Year's. The problem is it's early summer and soon enough even the walls themselves are striking out against them. That is a very vague synopsis about what this film is about. And yes, it is set during the summer so it does throw you off kilter pretty early on.
0: Fairly shortly into the proceedings, you realise that they're stuck in some kind of time warp, which is the new year of 1959 going into 1960. So you do get an opening sequence with a pastiche of a late 50s hit by the band Cry No More, who will provide most of the songs, in fact all of the songs actually, in this movie. So you get this dance going on, and then you kind of think, well, where is all this going? And then one of the guests gets pulled through a mirror, and then we're straight into the present day, or as it was the present day in the 80s, in which a group of friends enjoy all the fun of the fair at Barry Island, and then fall foul of some of the worst and most useless hooligans in horror film history.
1: It's quite interesting that this movie was shot in Wales in Butlins, Barry Island. That was where it was on location. Now, I can't work out if that's the same place as where the funfair in Barry Island is. If you've seen Gavin and Stacey, you'll know what I'm talking about. I've personally been there as well, so I'm not sure if it's exactly the same fun fair or there was like a different Butlins resort. So if you know any information about this, let us know in the comments on our social media because I'm just uh, curious as to where this was. So... The first section of the movie is surrounded by all these shenanigans at the fun fair and it's very chaotic. You don't really get a chance to get to know any characters, just events happen. And then there's this incident on the waltzers. Now, I'm not a fan of the waltzers. I would, that would be my worst nightmare, going through what the characters have to go through in that scene. And it is quite a prolonged scene as well. Like I felt like it was going on for longer than it needed to be. And then, of course, they take refuge in a ghost train, so it's very, very random. And then the plot kicks in when they head on a boat and come stranded in this random island and then find this Happy New Year house. Off the bat, it's haunted, and then chaos ensues. Like, for me, I I didn't enjoy this film that much, I have to be quite honest. It's what it is. It's very campy, 80s straight-to-video very much of its time. I don't think it's aged particularly well. I believe the copy that I did watch, which is available on YouTube, is straight from the VHS copy itself, so it's not the best quality to watch a movie on anymore. It has good ideas. The concept is quite inventive, but it's just the way it executes it. It's just very, very cheesy. There's nothing particularly scary in it whatsoever. There's just so many better horror films out there than this one, so sadly... Sorry Norman J. Warren, but this wasn't for me. I think this is the second movie of his I've seen as well. So yeah. It's uh not, not my not my cup of tea.
0: Did it stack up against the other Norman J. Warren movie that you watched? I'm assuming it was Inseminoid, the other one.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I watched Inseminoid at the Abatbar Horror Film Festival in twenty nineteen, so that was the last festival pre-COVID and Norman J. Warren was present as a special guest so I attended the Q&A with him following in Seminoid. Unfortunately he's passed away you know so we were very fortunate to be able to hear him talk about his career but yes in Seminoid again I don't think I gelled with that movie as well but I'd probably say they're on the same level as each other like I can't choose which was worse which was better in all honesty.
0: Yeah, Norman J. Warren's had an interesting career, and he was very interesting to listen to at Abattoir. I'm quite a big fan of Inseminoid. Not because it's a great movie, I just have a lot of affection for it. Probably because it's from the days of VHS, and I do remember renting it, and thinking, oh my God, what is this? My personal favourite of Norman J. Warren's is Terror, which was made in 1978, and it's kind of jello-stroke Argento-influenced, and it's pretty good, actually considering the budgets he had to work with. Clearly, there is a problem with the amount of money that they had to make this movie. They do have to make things work with very little resources at their disposal. Some of it works, a lot of it doesn't. I do like what they are trying to do, but the way they do it, they don't quite pull it off most of the time. I do share your trepidation of the waltzers about uh, the, the sequence in which one of the actresses is trapped on the waltzers for an extended period of time and on the extras on my disc of Bloody New Year the actress talks about the day that they filmed on the waltzers and apparently she was on there for hours getting spun round, and she hated it and I completely side with her but she was a young actress it was kind of a lead role for her at the time she was very enthusiastic so she was like yeah I'll do it I don't think at the end of that day she was particularly happy with her choices for that one. But overall, if you watch the interview on the Indicator disc, she had a really good time making Bloody New Year. She enjoyed the location shooting. She said Wales was a very beautiful part of the country. She'd never been there before. So overall, she had a good time making this movie, which you can kind of see that the actors are quite enjoying it. It's all very campy. It's all very silly. There's lots and lots of stuff that happens that, Makes no sense whatsoever. It's trying to do about four different horror movies at once. There's some Evil Dead in there. There's a bit of The shine in, There's some Poltergeist in. They just chuck all sorts of influences in. And it's just very daft, really. You're very unlikely to be scared by this. And if you don't crack up at the haunted vacuum cleaner piling along the landing, then there is something wrong with you. I was waiting for the haunted vacuum cleaner, I'd seen this years ago, and I was pretty sure thought I was thinking, this is this is the movie that's got the vacuum cleaner going along the landing, isn't it? And it was. So if you don't see Here for anything else, wait for the bit with the vacuum cleaner. It's the least threatening item in the hotel, and it's shot as if it's this enormous threatening monster. And all it does is it trundles along the landing and then falls down the stairs, hitting absolutely nobody. It's the worst horror film monster you've ever seen. But there's quite a few interesting creatures in there. There is a reasonably well executed jump scare with a table where somebody comes up to this table that's just got a green top, and from nowhere, this monster jumps out of the top of the table. So there's some imagination there, but overall. You just watch it and think, oh my god. It's certainly a product of its time. It's when lots of things went straight to video in the 80s, this being one of them. It's not particularly gory. Lots of people get killed and have bits ripped off them. But even then, if I tell you about some of the stuff that's going on, some guy gets his arm chopped off in a lift, but it's so fake and there's very little blood, and it's just very, very, very daft. But it's done with enthusiasm, so I can't hate this movie. I didn't think it was a chore to sit through, but at the end, I was thinking, yeah, fine, I'm glad that's over.
1: For me, it was a bit of a chore, I have to admit. I think the difference between both of us on this podcast is you get Darren, who grew up in the VHS era and has that affection for those types of movies, where I am spoilt where it comes to horror. grew up in the 2000s and was able to watch all the kind of glossy, bigger budget horror films and with all the blood and gore and, and loving all that. So I think we come from very different places. I mean, I'm not saying that I don't enjoy old horror movies. I absolutely do, but they, I draw a line in on some films. And again, as Darren says, this isn't a bad movie in the sense of it's utterly terrible. They obviously enjoy making it. It was a labour of love for the filmmakers and there's nothing wrong with that. They clearly had a blast with it, but it just isn't enough to translate well on screen. If the uh, killer vacuum cleaner is the film's most memorable moment, I think that kind of sets the bar quite low. (laughs) What I was quite interested about with this film, I really do like the artwork for it. I mean, In the 80s, they did pride themselves on making these really attractive VHS covers to draw people in. And the quality of the film never matched the quality of the video art. And with this one that came out in the US video cover, it's got a skeleton with a party hat, disco ball behind him and streamers. And it just looks really fun and quirky. And it's like looking at the cover alone, I've been like, yeah, that is the kind of movie I would be interested in checking out because it looks like a lot of fun. It doesn't take itself too seriously. But again, it's just the low quality. And I felt like the characters in this movie were a bit too laid back. Like nobody really reacted to the situation that was going on. And that obviously takes away from the scare element. Because if they're not reacting, if they're just kind of going about their business as usual and accepting that they're in this situation where all these weird things suddenly start happening. For example, there's a character near the beginning who walks into this room and sees two random singers singing like a 1950s song and suddenly disappear and he just doesn't really think oh that's a bit strange it just kind of goes with the flow and it goes from this fun fair sequence where as I say everything's a bit chaotic to everybody just accepting that this is fairly normal and that just didn't work with me I think if they'd had better writing in it it could have improved it a lot Bloody New Year is its current title, but apparently it was also known as Time Warp Terror and Horror Hotel. Now, I quite like Time Warp Terror, but then maybe people would have associated it more with rocky horror and then that wouldn't have let the film stand on its own. For me, it had elements that I enjoyed and it is what it is, as you say, very much a product of its time. And I think if you don't gel with that era of horror, so to speak, it it might not work for you and that's probably how I approached
0: it yeah that's fair I think being from a slightly different era I've got a higher tolerance of crap certainly a higher (laughs) tolerance of crap from that era as well I can appreciate why people who are obviously brought up on more sophisticated and more higher budgeted horror will look at this and go what what the fuck is this which is fair enough horror hotel as a title is an interesting one because horror hotel was also one of the alternative titles for Toby Hooper's Death Trap or Eaten Alive or Starlight Slaughter. All the wealth of titles that Death Trap had. So I'm not really sure whether they decided that Horror Hotel had been used before somewhere and they backed out of it. Bloody New Year's quite a good title. I quite like it as a title. I mean, Horror Hotel, I don't think it really saw the light of day as... I don't think it played many places... I think it was mostly Death Trap or Eaten Alive. Certainly Death Trap when it came out on video over here. It's Eaten Alive now. That's the thing about movies going through various titling phases. Talking of really great titles, there is a movie playing in Bloody New Year in the cinema. And it's the... I think it's late 50s. It must be late 50s because this is when it's set. And it's called Fiend Without a Face. And it's about aliens which are just kind of brain stems attacking people so you get to see a little bit of Fiend Without a Face. Fiend Without a Face, it's one of those movies where it's extremely silly but I remember seeing it as a kid and just thinking this is great. (laughs) With the passing of time I've watched it and thinking well it's a bit crap now but it's fun, it's fun sci-fi movie and you do get to see a bit of it. You're right about the characters being laid back though. One character is laid back to the point where he's asking about so much that he doesn't realise that somebody in the screen of the film that they're watching comes out of the screen and kills him pretty much before he's got a chance to react. These people are idiots, basically. They're all idiots. Something really bizarre happens and then they just brush it off it's like oh well you know these sort of things probably do happen in hotels It's like, what what sort of hotels have you been to things with haunted vacuum cleaners running around and and zombies appearing actually speaking of zombies appearing there is the quickest transformation into zombie ever put to celluloid because one of the characters dies in a sort of conceptually upsetting way but it's not very upsetting on screen she gets punched all the way through. So you get this like weird sequence where some guy manages to punch all the way through her stomach out the back, which, you know, you think, oh, that's gross. It isn't in this movie. But the minute he takes his hand back out, she's a zombie immediately. So you've got this kind of bit of evil dead stuff where something's happened to her about 10 minutes previously, and she's obviously been possessed by the spirit of what's going around this hotel. And then the sort of second half of the movie turns into a kind of Who's getting possessed? Who's not? Who's going to die? Who's not? It's shot in such a haphazard fashion. There's just people running about for most of the second half. There's like long sequences where people run across lawns or upstairs or through corridors. There's a lot of running in this movie. There's also an absolute rip off of the Evil Dead cam where something is following people through this woods and it's just like, yeah, they've seen the Evil Dead and they've tried to do it. It doesn't quite match. The shaky cam that Sam Raimi invented for that—it's okay. It doesn't really grasp that feeling of speed that the Evil Dead does. The monster is kind of it plods a little bit, and then it goes to people, and then they sort of part, and then it goes between them, and then it it circles. If you see this movie, you'll see what I mean. It's not great technique, but again, it is—it's reasonably fun. The script changed quite a lot in this movie as it was going along. Again, if you watch the indicator disc, the interview with Catherine Roman, saying that pretty much every day they were getting pink pages to the script. So it was always getting rewritten. And it does feel like that, this movie. It feels like that they come in and say like, right, okay, we've got a good idea for today. Let's do this. And it's like, well, how's this going to fit into the rest of the story? Oh, who cares? It's a good idea. And you do get this feeling going throughout the movie. So you get this whole sequence where they run into a kitchen and all hell breaks loose and like, and dishes are flying around and there's knives flying out of drawers and there's stuff moving around. And it's kind of like, where's this come from? Somebody obviously thought, this sounds cool, let's do it. So there's a lot of stuff in there. And basically, it just gets to a point where they think, well, how are we going to end this? Oh, let's just end it. There's no real progression. It just grinds to a halt. The plot like, well, we've almost got no people left. Are we going to let them get away, or are they going to all be possessed and become part of the hotel? Not going to tell you which ending it is, but they just kind of think, well, right, okay, we must be around 90 minutes now, so let's just finish it here. Are we going to conclude the plot in about two or three minutes? Oh, I know. Let's do this.
1: I think it was a bit of a relief it did end after about 90 <laughs> minutes, because I don't think anybody could have had the mental capacity to take on any more of that film. I think it had the potential to be quite a creepy film an inventive film but as as you say with the rewrites and the rewrites like during the shoot as well that explains a lot because everything feels so disconnected it's, it's just a kind of scenes strung together in a lot of places so that really does make a lot of sense now i know that information and yes it is a complete rip off the evil dead it probably knows it's a complete rip off of the evil dead and it probably thought it would market itself as being the British Evil Dead, but there's only one Evil Dead. We don't need anybody ripping off any other films because it always makes you roll your eyes when movies do this. You've seen it done in a more iconic, established movie, and that is where you imagine that whole technique and scene from, and then they just try and rip it off, and it's like, no, just be original but horror movies are never original. I just don't know if there's any more originality in the genre anymore anyway, so you're always going to find bits and pieces borrowed from different films, no matter which horror movie you watch.
0: Yeah, that's true. I do like it at the very end as well. There are two characters who go into the dance hall and are supposedly participating in what's called the Elimination Waltz. So you get some spirit on the stage telling them that they're going to be doing this waltz. What they really should have done was call it the Exposition walls, because that's when they explain absolutely everything in the plot at the end, just in case you missed it as it was going along. It's all some rubbish about this plane having this particular bit of equipment on, and it's caused this rift in time, and everything on the island is stuck in this particular fragment of time, and nobody's supposed to be able to get out of it. Plenty of people seem to be able to get into it, but nobody can get out of it. There's lots of things that are just left unexplained because they just are left unexplained. And if you think about this movie at all for any length of time after it's finished, in fact, even when it's going on, the basic conclusion you're going to come to is this is absolute cobblers. It's complete cobblers from start to finish. Having said that, it's complete cobblers I have a little bit of affection for. It isn't great filmmaking, but it did take me back to a time when I did rent this on VHS and I probably didn't have a massively great time with it when I rented it before. But it was probably one of those things that I was coming back from the pub, it was a Friday night, and it was like, right, what am I going to stick on? And I think if you're hammered, this is quite acceptable because you don't have to use your brain at all. It's just like, right, what's happening now? There's a haunted banister attacking somebody. Why is it attacking somebody? I don't care. I'm drunk.
1: I think it would definitely suit a bad film club style screening for sure. And I agree with you about the alcohol consumption. Maybe that would enhance the viewing experience because watching it sober, I don't know, you've got to be in the right frame of mind for a movie like this. And I think it is one that it might do better in an audience environment rather than just watching it at home by yourself. It's all about the experience. So again, at home watching this film, it just didn't achieve that for me. But if you're around other people and everyone's giggling and you can imagine like a Nico and Joe commentary, especially with the haunted back view, they'd have a field day with that one. I think that would have improved the viewing experience. But again, it kind of falls into that category. There's so many low budgets, straight to video, 80s horror movies. And I know a lot of people have some affection for it there's so many labels like Arrow Video and 88 Films etc that breathe new life into these titles but I just don't think that they kind of hold the test of time I mean it's interesting to see rare films and look back on them but this one again there's just nothing that unique about it apart from maybe the vacuum so (laughs) The idea of it, generally, the premise, it would have suited maybe like an anthology horror TV series, either aimed at, like, teenagers or slapping 18 on it, I guess.
0: I think it kind of falls between two stills because it's not gory enough for gorehounds, but it's too gory for kids, and it is a 15 certificate in the UK at the moment. The violence, it's comparatively mild, and it's fantasy violence as well. And none of the effects are very convincing either. It's all very slapped together which kind of gives it a bit of charm as well but equally I think people who are going for a bit of hard driving horror and put this on are going to be very disappointed about 20 minutes in the scene in the funfair goes on for quite a while as well and has some of the worst stunt falls ever there are clearly points at which somebody is like all right I'm going to fall through this or I'm going to fall over this so there is stunt work but you can tell exactly where folks are going to fall off moving vehicles. At least they've tried to do something. They've tried to put some action in it. They've tried to put some gore in it. They've tried to put some scares in it. None of it really works. But I kind of like the fact that none of it really works. It will work better with an audience. And I think for a bad film club type movie, people will get a lot out of it if you're allowed to make your own comments as you go along rather than sort of sit there and try and take it all in, because there's no point trying to do that. At one point, somebody in the cast says, suddenly everything seemed so stupid. Suddenly, it's been stupid from the first minute. How how come it suddenly got stupid? It's a stupid movie. So if you're not in the mood for a stupid movie, then I'd give this one a wide berth. I think you have to give it some space to weave its 80s dodgy magic and if it doesn't sound like that's your cup of tea then don't watch it you can find it on youtube it's a very obscure movie to get now in fact even the 2k restoration that i watched it was only because they found one print of this movie there was one 35 millimeter print of this movie in existence and even that was damaged so watching it on blu-ray in its 2k version is quite interesting because Some of it looks really, really nice, but some of it is absolutely knackered and it's clear that the print is fucked, basically. But interesting way to watch a movie. And I'm quite glad that it's part of the Norman J. Warren box set because you've got things like Terror and Inseminoid and Prey and Satan's Slave. This isn't quite as grungy as those movies. It's nice to see him take a bit of a step back in terms of gruesome violence, because Terror's all full of people getting stabbed and having their throats slashed and heads cut off and stuff, and it's, it's pretty gory. Whereas this, it's a bit more fun than that sort of movie. It's not better. Terror is a better movie, but this is, well, it's fine for people like me. Everybody else will probably think, why are you trying to push this crap on us? And I'm guessing that the good folks of IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes probably don't come down on my side on this movie
1: so it has a 4.5 out of 10 on imdb so there's obviously a small percentage of people out there that do enjoy this film i mean going off the uh, user reviews somebody described it as enjoyably ridiculous redundant fun house of horrors (laughs) somewhat enjoyable nonsense so you know i think there is that element, there are gonna be people out there that do appreciate it because it is very much of its time and it evokes that nostalgia. But then for me with a horror movie, I like to have good character development. I like to be on board with what's going on. I like to feel for the characters. I like to be in the moment with that situation. I like to be tensed up on the edge of my seat. And this doesn't deliver any of those things. I'm not, not saying that I don't enjoy fun horror movies. Of course I do. Yeah, but I think because the genre is so oversaturated, it's really hard to cherry pick the really good ones. I suppose okay, if I could give you a movie that I absolutely enjoy that I know is terrible is House. Like I have loved that film since I was a teenager, so that is just an example.
0: No, House is great. House is really good. In fact, we we ought to do House on the podcast at some point. We should do House. Yeah, we we definitely should give House a whirl. Yeah, you're right though. I mean, the characters are not very well drawn. The dialogue is appalling. I mean, it is beyond appalling. Sample dialogue. One of the female characters says, twice is quite enough for me without a break. And she's not referring to that, what you're thinking. And some guy says, oh, that's what you say every night. Oh, it's one of those movies. It's just full of really crappy dialogue. I can't defend the writing in this because it's not very good. Did it have any critic rating on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm surprised if it does.
1: Uh, no, it's just blank, but it has a twenty six percent audience score. So, Darren, you are not alone. There are right. others like you out there, so you can feel safe in the knowledge it's not just you that enjoys yeah. these crappy films. Yeah,
0: exactly. There's <laughs> there's a market for shit out there, and there yes. are people that do appreciate shit as much as I do. I'm not surprised that there's no critic reviews of this movie because where did it get screened? Really, I mean, I can't imagine that this had any sort of cinema run because it just showed up on video pretty much out of nowhere and I remember thinking, Oh, it's a Norman Warren movie and like I haven't heard of this. And it's on video. Fairly quickly became apparent why I hadn't heard of it. It was like, oh my God, what is this? But as you say, there's an audience for this sort of stuff. There is nostalgia. And if you're in a very tolerant mood, there's stuff that you can get out of Bloody New Year. If you're expecting it to be up to the standard of your even your modern indie horror movies, it's not there. It's creaky it's clunky, the dialogue's terrible, the effects are rubbish, the plot's daft, the ending's silly. Apart from that, great movie.
1: Fair enough. I mean, for me, I watched it, seen it, and take it off the horror movie list, not that it was ever on my horror movie <laughs> list, but, you know, I've, I've given it a try, and that, that's, I'll do my best, that's all I can do.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough, yeah. I'm not saying that Everything that I'm going to introduce people to is going to be a winner. This certainly isn't. And even when we picked it, I thought, you know what? This might not land quite as well as New Year's Evil did. And it certainly didn't. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 89 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening.
1: And if you enjoyed this episode and would like to check out our past content and receive updates for future content, you can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast.
0: All that's left is for us to wish you a very happy new year. Or is it? Just one more thing. We decided that we'd bring you our top five podcast episodes voted for us by us. (laughs) Of the year We don't know which ones Either of us have voted for So this is going to be as much of a surprise For the other as it is for you So do you want to go first Haley? what's your number 5
1: Okay so these are our episodes That we can recommend to you If you're not sure which ones to listen to Okay number 5 I had a great time With the George Clooney face off Which was Return to Horror High And Return of the Killer Tomatoes
0: Yeah, that was a pretty good one. That just sneaked outside the five for me. My number five was episode 55, which was the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari full sound version in which we dragged on poor old Dr. Lauren McIntyre to sift through this absolute atrocity of a redo.
1: Yeah, that was a lot of fun and a very bizarre rendition of Dr. Caligari. I mean, I'm still not recovered from that. I can't believe like my eyes have been and ears have been subjected to that film, but it was great to have Dr. Lauren on and a fun episode to record. Mm-hmm. Okay, at number four for me, it is when we covered the troll saga very early on in the year.
0: This is gonna appear in my list at some point as well. Really good to cover both troll movies and the documentary Best Worst Movie about Troll 2. It was nice to get through all of those movies as well. I hadn't seen Troll for a while. I hadn't seen Troll 2 for a while, actually. And I hadn't seen Best Worst Movie at all. So it was quite a, an enlightening episode, that one.
1: Yeah, I'm always up for watching Troll 2. It is a real treat to get to revisit it because it is just so much fun. It's terrible, but good terrible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. My number four is episode 75 and it's our final... Summer of Sharks episode it was The Last Shark with Kate Orton which was hilarious for any number of reasons the movie is very dodgy but there was something joyous about finishing Summer of Sharks on that one
1: yeah it was a good one to end on with the title obviously being The Last Shark it was our last episode in the series and um, always great to have our sharks but Kate Orton on the podcast to hear her unique perspective my number three, this was actually a listener's choice. We requested for you guys to suggest animated films to us and then we generated it at random out of a hat. And the movie we got was Watership Down, which was a very different movie for us to cover. We hadn't really done animation before and it was the first time viewing for me. Obviously, I'm aware Watership Down is an incredibly notorious children's film and I had a lot of appreciation for it. I'm glad that I've been able to see it and appreciate the movie and it was a
0: really interesting discussion yeah it also forced me to revisit buried childhood trauma so yeah thanks for that I'll be back in therapy for several years now after that episode it is a great movie though and anybody who hasn't seen Watership Down please go and see it it's a beautiful piece of animation and if you haven't listened to the episode cue it up and listen to our thoughts on it my number three was when we went off the range a little bit for episode 70, where we actually dragged some filmmakers in to talk to us. We got in Mel Gulley and Paul Huxley to talk about Seepers and their new project, They Fuck You Up. It was nice to have people in the studio who are actually making the movies rather than us talking about movies that are made by people we can't get hold of, basically. It was nice to have a bit of a chat. It was fun and it gives a little bit of an insight into the indie filmmaking process.
1: Yeah, that was a really great episode to record, and I highly recommend it. Plus, there is some bonus content in that episode exclusively for us, which is a sample of what to expect from They Fuck You Up. So, definitely go and check that out if you like horror musicals. Okay, my number two. I absolutely loved this episode, Wild Things. It had been a while since I revisited it and I'd forgotten how good that movie was. And it was the brand new Arrow video restoration. It had so much bonus content. We got to see an extended cut of the movie as well. So there was some new well-purposed scenes added in that really enhanced the movie. So, And again, it was just such like a twisty turny film. So had a lot of fun revisiting that.
0: Yeah, it's always nice to see well things. And the extended cut is really good. Most of the time, these extended cuts, it's just stuff that doesn't really matter. The extra stuff that they put into Wild Things for the extended cut really opens out the movie and puts a different spin on the end of it. So I enjoyed that one as well. Again, that was kind of bubbling under in my five. It was just outside with Watership Down. Number two for me is Troll, Troll 2, Best Worst Movie. I had a blast doing that one. So it's number one now.
1: So, Number one, yeah. we got there in the end. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think this will be any surprise, to be fair. I love anything weird, inexplicable, something that I can research and fall down rabbit holes with. And I absolutely loved our episode on the film that does exist, Shazam, and the film that people thought existed, then realised didn't exist, Shazam, starring Sinbad. And people are still talking about this Mandela effect. And I just don't think it's ever going to be resolved. And there's always going to be new theories coming out all the time. And then it's going to attach itself to other movies. And it's just, there's just so much to get into with that. And I just really enjoyed reading comments on Reddit and bringing some weirdness to the podcast. So for me, that was my number one of the year.
0: My number one of the year is Kazam. And the Mandela effect as well. Same episode. We would stepped slightly out of the normal HD movie podcast zone to bring you something slightly different. But it was good to tie a movie to a very weird phenomenon. And you're right. I don't think the Shazam discourse is ever going to go away. There are still people out there that think it exists. There's a guy out there who is going to try and prove it exists. Apparently, he's got the evidence. We haven't seen it yet, but... Who knows, next year we might be eating humble pie and saying, well, this episode is about Shazam.
1: And the latest information I found out about it was Jonathan Brandis was not involved. I believe it was Jonathan Brandis that they were referring to. It wasn't actually him. Guys, it was Devon Sawyer. Devon Sawyer was the kid in Shazam, just for the record.
0: I'm interested. I'm sure that Devon Sawyer's got his own take on this. If he did appear in it, did he remember appearing in it? Is it a massive conspiracy? Were people drugged to appear in this movie? Is it a mafia thing? We may never know. Who knows? We might get the answers to it next year. I very much doubt it, but we might.
1: We can live in hope. So talking of next year, HD Movie Podcast will be back. We have lots of plans up our sleeves, so just keep an eye out on our social media for our grand return. Because it will happen in 2023.
0: It will. It will probably happen around March time. Because it's my fault. I am disappearing to the other side of the world. I'm not doing a Master and Commander thing. I'm not doing Russell Crowe. But I am venturing to the far-flung corners of the earth for a few weeks. So hopefully I won't get bitten by spiders, eaten by sharks or attacked by snakes when I'm out there. Hopefully... I'll get back to the UK and we'll see you all again in March. But until then, have a very, very happy new year.
1: Yeah, have a good one, guys, and have lots of fun and we'll look forward to creating new content for you in 2020.
0: The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Haley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and PodBeat.